Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Hope you had a great weekend. Um, busy, busy week coming up. Let's dive into today's Q&A for Monday. This comes from Brian. Brian prefaced his question as a hamstring question, but I think it's going to be a little bit more than that, Brian. Um, so let's break this down. Brian says, if an individual presents with a significant anterior orientation of the pelvis with a significant limitation in bilateral hip ER, so that is a, a pretty good indication that you've got the anterior orientation when you lose the hip ER, would it be worthwhile to focus on proximal hamstrings at 30 to 60 degrees of hip flexion to reorient the pelvis and possibly attempt to bias the lateral hamstrings to promote more hip ER. This individual is a narrow ISA with an excellent squat and hip flexion, but a poor toe touch. So this is going to provide us a little bit of information. Um, it's still incomplete, so we're going to make a couple of assumptions here, Brian, and I'm going to break this down for you um, uh, piece by piece, and so we can get an idea of what we're actually looking at, and then we can come up with a, with a bit of a solution. So let me grab the pelvis, as usual. Okay. So we've got a narrow, we've got a narrow ISA person. So we've got an inhale representation of, of the of the pelvis and axial skeleton. We've got a counternutated sacrum, and so we're looking at something that looks like that from behind, and something like that, give or take, uh, a little crooked there. There we go, a little bit like that um, anteriorly. Now, so we've got a loss of bilateral hip ER. So we've got an anterior orientation from this representation, but, but let's think about this for a second. When we have a narrow ISA, we have to think about the compensatory sequence that, that, that arose as we get to this anterior orientation. Prior to that anterior orientation, you had an anterior compression, which is going to reduce hip IR. Now, by its bias alone, when we look at the, the inhale representation of the axial skeleton, what we're going to do is we're going to bias it towards more ER, less IR to begin with. But in your case, you're also going to have that anterior compression. So we also know from your description that we're probably going to see an IR deficit. Now, let's put together some of the complex movements that you were talking about before. Squat is excellent. Hip flexion is excellent, but toe touch is poor. So let's use the toe touch as a quick representation under these circumstances that we've already described. So for me to have a, a, a normal toe touch under this circumstance, I would have to be able to eccentrically orient the posterior musculature below the level of the trochanter. Um, if, I, if I can't do that, then toe touch is going to be limited, but I can still squat and I can still get a good hip flexion measurement but we're gonna to have to look at the compensatory strategy that we're, that we're looking at. So on the table, when we're looking at hip flexion under this circumstance, because you're narrow uh, and because you're anteriorly oriented, you're more likely seeing a posterior orientation of the pelvis and the lumbar spine as you're moving into hip flexion, which is why you're getting such a good hip flexion measurement, but you can't access the toe touch. The squat is gonna be a very similar representation. So as I squat, the, the substitution for the hip range of motion that I need to access as I sit down into the squat is again, it's going to be posterior orientation of the pelvis and the lumbar spine as a unit that's gonna allow me to capture that depth, or I've got a unilateral compressive strategy on this side and I'm using it sort of a, a, like a hip height cheat as I go through this middle range of the squat 
which is going to allow me to access some internal rotation, and, and that would be my, my substitution. So the hip hike or a, or a side bend through the trunk is going to provide me that substitution that's going to allow me to look like I have a, a pretty good representation of a squat. But the fact that you don't have the toe touch is kind of the dead giveaway that we still have this, this uh, uh, posterior compressive strategy. Now, from a solution standpoint, like I said, I really like where you're, where you're thinking about this in that 30 to 60 degree range, but here's what you're gonna have to do. Because you, you most likely have some element of concentric orientation with this, this posterior lower compressive strategy, you're gonna have to maintain hip internal rotation prior to the reorientation of the pose. So you're gonna try to get a posterior orientation. The problem that's gonna happen is if you don't do something to maintain hip, maintain hip internal rotation, which would be traditional adduction based on the position that you're describing, what's gonna happen is I try to posteriorly orient, what you're gonna get is you're gonna get the little butt squeezer kind of person. So they've already got some concentric orientation here. They're gonna magnify that as they try to posteriorly orient and you're gonna get the same substitution that you got on the table with hip flexion and the same substitution that you got with the squat. And all you're gonna do is compress this even more. So what you're gonna to try to attempt to do is try to utilize hamstrings to get posterior orientation. All you're gonna do is emphasize this, this compressive strategy. Now, if you maintain adduction internal rotation during that, then you're, not, you're gonna actually gonna open up this pelvic outlet rather than compress it. And so um, some of the activities that, that you might need to do, um, if you're dealing with somebody with a painful situation or a lot of limitation or not a lot of movement experience, then maybe you start them in a, in a hook lying position. Um, but you're going to have to put something uh, between their knees to help maintain the internal rotation moment at the hip prior to trying to create that, that uh, reduction in the anterior orientation. Um, from there, if you can bring them to their feet, then you're going to use partial squat variations, which I just love to death. So this might be some sort of a supported squat. So they're going to hold on to an upright and you're going you're gonna to move them through a partial squat, again, maintaining the adduction internal rotation. We can use a TRX squat variation here, but always maintaining the, the hip internal rotation. From there, you want to build them downward so they can get to a parallel squat without a compensatory strategy. So, so you'll have to monitor the internal and external rotation of the hip after you do these activities to make sure that you are recapturing position. So once you can maintain internal and external rotation, now you take them out into the gym and now we're to half kneeling variations, we're in split squat variations, we're able to do step ups with cross connects and then that can move towards something more, even more dynamic if, if we've got an athlete in this situation where we're moving towards um, uh, A marches with cross connects forwards and backwards, um, a skips, etc. And so we're moving towards a very, very dynamic situation there. Um, but again, I think that the, the, it's the way you start this that's going to be most important for you, Brian, is to make sure you maintain the adduction internal rotation. Um, but, I, but again, I think your, your foundational strategy is right on. So I hope that helps. Um, if, if it doesn't, then ask me another question. Ask BillHartman at gmail.com. And you guys have a great day, and I'll see you later. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. A busy Tuesday as usual. And I got a really good Q&A 
um, we get to look at some of the aspects of the model in, in a little bit of context of, of walking um, versus running. So this question comes from David. David says, hello, Bill. Well, hello, David. Uh, wondering if you could shed some light on any differences in the propulsive phase of gait when we're discussing running versus walking. I just recently began following your Q&A segments, and I'm still trying to wrap my brain around some of the model's terminology and, and concepts. Thank you for your consideration. Cool. This is a great question, David. Real quick, let me point you to some stuff that's that's on my YouTube channel that, that will be helpful. So there's already discussions about, about the propulsive phase um, on, on YouTube. So, so check those videos out. There's also videos on yielding and overcoming actions, which will be very important because we're going to talk about that a little bit in this context. Um, and then I would also look at some of the hip rotation um, videos as well. And so, so those will guide, oh, curve running is also might be a, a, of interest to you since we're going to talk about running versus walking. Um, there's some, some cool stuff in there as well. But anyway, let's, let's dig into this. So we're going to have some stuff that's in common and we're going to, we're going to have some, some things, um, that, that are different. Um, cause we, we got differences in viscoelastic tissue behavior. And to be honest with you, we could probably talk a whole week about this. Um, and I'm not talking about a whole week of these kind of videos. I'm talking about like literally a whole week about this uh, because there, there's a lot of detail that we could get into. But let's, let's just consider some of the commonalities because we're talking about two forms of locomotion. Um, so they're going to have aspects that, that are very, very similar. So both walking and running, regardless of speed, um, we're going to have a max propulsive phase. So this is a point where we're going to be applying maximum force into the ground. The cool thing about that is that under almost all circumstances, that that position of the foot is going to be the same. And so, so the max propulsive foot is actually when the heel breaks from the ground. So it's not like way up here. Um, it's actually right where the where the heel breaks the ground. And so when we're talking about walking, we're gonna we're gonna move through ankle rocker. The heel is gonna come up. If we're talking about sprinting, we're coming down from the ground. And, and as we apply force to the ground, the heel is just, just going to barely miss the ground. It's going to stay slightly above the ground. So we're talking about the same propulsive position of the foot, regardless of whether we're talking about any form of locomotion um, in, in regards to two feet on the ground kind of a thing. Um, so, so that's kind of cool, which is, which is really helpful. Um, the ground contact, regardless of, of running speed or walking, is always going to be slightly in front of the center of gravity. This ha actually has to happen. So there's actually a little bit of a braking force, even at top speed running, because what we have to be able to do is we actually have to be able to create the compressive strategy um, with ground contact that, that stores the energy to release it, whether we're, we're, we're walking or running. Now, obviously, at very high speeds, that that distance in front of the center of gravity needs to be minimized because we want to minimize the braking force to run really, really fast. But it still has to happen. Otherwise, we don't get the compression and expansion that's associated with the, the storage and release of energy. The pelvis is still going to move through its inhalation and, and exhalation um, bias. But obviously, the faster we run, the, the faster that's going to occur and actually the excursion is going to be limited and much more biased. So the faster we go, the more we're going to be biased towards an, an exhalation strategy. And so 
So now let's go, go deep into some, some differences. So walking has a longer period of time between, between ground contact and, and max propulsion compared to running. So what this means is that the forces are gonna be dissipated over a much longer period of time because of the slower rate of locomotion. We need a longer delay in the propulsive strategy so we can swing the other leg out in front of us so we don't, we don't fall on our face. So running has a much shorter period of time, regardless of, of what running speed we're talking about, there's a shorter period of time between ground contact and max propulsion. At top speed, the elite sprinters, um, they'll, hit, they'll hit ground contacts as brief as, as 0.08 seconds. Um, so it's nearly instantaneous as to, as to how they're landing, which again, it's gonna lend us to trying to understand, okay, what is this hip or pelvis actually doing um, at, the, at the point of ground contact and why we have such a strong bias. Um, so we still need a delay to swing the other leg through, but it's gonna be very, very brief. Now, the, one of the coolest things about, about walking versus running, for me, um, is just the behavior of viscoelastic tissue. So we're talking about, about differences in force, and so, so there's, there's seven components of force that influence the viscoelastic uh, tissue behavior. So we got uh, magnitude, location, direction, duration, frequency, variability, and rate. So I can only say them in that order, but there's seven of them. But, but we're gonna talk primarily about the rate-related issue because that's the easiest one that we can, we can visualize um, with walking versus running because we're, we're dealing with a, with a time constraint. So the higher rate of loading, the higher the rate of loading, so the faster we load tissues, the stiffer that they're, they're going to behave, the harder they become to deform but when we do deform them, they can store a heck of a lot more energy and therefore they can release a lot more energy, which is what we see at higher running speeds. But we also see a lot of cool stuff like stress fractures and, and um, like, uh, like tissue related um, issues that are associated with these high forces over longer periods of time. So, so if you want to start a great business, what I would suggest you do is you want to work with, with runners because um, those people are going to experience a lot of tissue loading over short periods of time. And again, if they're exposed to longer durations, they're going to accumulate the, um, a lot more of, of these issues. At the reduced rate of loading, when we see with walking, the tissues are less, sti less stiff. We're gonna see a lot more yielding uh, action associated with that because again, we have to dissipate those forces over a much longer period of time and that's gonna help slow us down um, as we walk. So again, the yielding strategy provides us that delay that's necessary to, to hold the center of gravity back so we can get the other leg out in front of us. So again, we're talking about rate-related issues here. The faster we move, so whether we walk faster or, or run, we're gonna see a reduction in the amount of rotation that's available to us. So we've got a time constraint um, that, that's associated with this um, for sure, because again, it, we have to consider the, the time from ground contact to, to max propulsion. So when we're walking, we're gonna land in a fair amount of external rotation. We're gonna move through internal rotation through that max propulsive phase, and then we're gonna go back to external rotation. Well, if we're running at top speed, especially, um, we're landing at, at almost immediate max propulsion. So the amount of rotation that we have, one, available to us, because we don't have time for that, um, it's gonna be a very, very quick internal rotation that's gonna be associated with that. So this is why we're gonna see biases in runners, like the anti-orientation of the pelvis gets us closer to, to that, that internal rotation moment that we need at max propulsion. So, so that's why every sprinter kind of looks the same in, in that regard, is because it's, it's just a trained bias that allows them to perform something um, very, very quickly. So in a nutshell, um, 
walking and running are gonna demonstrate some very, very similar characteristics because it's still locomotion. We still have to be able to propel um, our, propel ourselves um, uh, against gravity, move ourselves forward. So again, we, we're gonna have a max propulsion, but the rate at which we would see any form of a bias occur is going to be different. The ranges of motion that we're exposed to are gonna be a little bit different. The breathing strategy is gonna be biased a little bit differently, and certainly the tissue behavior is gonna be a little bit different. So again, I would point you towards the yielding and overcoming strategy video to, to get a little bit of understanding about that, because at the higher rates of letting, we're gonna see a lot more overcoming action. At the slower rates, we're going to see a more yielding action. So David, I hope that kind of points you in a little bit in the right direction. If I didn't cover something that you wanted to talk about, please ask me another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, today's Wednesday, that means tomorrow is Thursday, 6 a.m. Please join us for the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. We usually have a great group of people that come together and we talk about all things professional, technical, and every once in a while we gripe and complain just to get some things off our chest, so it's all very, very helpful. But it's a great time, so, so again, please join us for that. Uh, got a squat hinge question. These questions seem to be very, very popular. People seem to have have a lot of questions as to the dis distinguishing characteristics, and this is actually a pretty good one from Mihail. Mihail says, can you please go over what's going on in the uh, lower posterior ribcage during squatting and hinging? I used to think that hinging will compress the posterior ribcage and squatting will expand it. For example, when performing goblet squat with heels elevated, here is below 60 degrees, the lower ribcage will expand. Um, but you've also said that during hinging the posterior lower rib cage expands. My guess is since the rib cage moves the pelvis, there'll be more posterior lower expansion during a hinge and be because the sacrum is nutane, but that contradicts the hinge being more of an exhalation based activity. Thank you for the great info. So, so the last part of your question gives us an opportunity to, to really clarify a couple of things that, that we haven't talked about probably in a long time that is kind of important in regards to uh, just a normal uh, breathing as to where we drive some of this, this expansion. And so I'm gonna bring in the skeleton um, to give us a little bit of a representation here. So obviously when we breathe in, the diaphragm, diaphragm descends and, and theoretically we're gonna get this sort of uniform expansion um, throughout the lung. Uh, because of gravity, it's gonna fill from the bottom up. If we're standing upright, and so that's kind of like this normal representation. Um, but when, when we talk about concentric muscle activity, um, in addition to the diaphragm that's going to promote uh, thorax expansion, this is why we talk about dorsal rostral expansion a great deal because concentric muscle activity of these intercostals is also gonna promote this, this upper posterior expansion. We're gonna get the up pump handle. So the parasternal intercostals also inhalation biased to, to create this, this expansion, okay? But in doing so, um, we have to consider what, what's happening in this, in this posterior lower aspect um, that, that you mentioned because it is kind of interesting when we talk about squatting versus hinging. So the, when we talk about posterior lower, we're gonna look at the in, inferior angle of the scapula below, <coughs> excuse me, down to about T10 or so because that's gonna be where the, the bottom of the lung actually, actually rests in, in most circumstances. If we talk about the same representation in the pelvis, we're talking about way, way down 
um, in, in this posterior aspect. So, so we're talking about this lower aspect, of, uh, most lower aspect of the sacrum, and then the coccyx as being the same representation that we just saw in the posterior lower thorax. So that's how far down we're, we're talking about. Now, the cool thing here is we can use my, my archetypes to um, represent the, the two extremes of, of, a, of a hinge versus a squat because we do have a bias by structure that's gonna, gonna help us um, identify this representation. So if we talk about someone that, that is a wide infrasternal angle, so their bias is going to be towards an exhalation strategy by design. And so if I bring my guy back in here, what we're gonna see with the wide ISA is we're gonna see much less expansion in, in the upper thorax. So the dorsal rostral is gonna be biased towards an exhalation strategy. The, the sternum is gonna be biased towards an exhalation strategy. But because of the shape of the diaphragm as it descends in, in a wide ISA, so this is a compensatory strategy of the diaphragm, we're gonna see this posterior lower expansion. So we're biased towards an exhalation strategy which would nutate the sacrum <clears throat> and the coccyx together. So we, we always gotta, we, we can't forget about this little guy, the coccyx is kind of important because we got a lot of glute max that's attached to that sacrotuberous ligament, etc. And that's the same representation of the posterior lower rib cage. And so as I move into this, this hinging pattern, that's what I'm gonna kind of see. So we can't just talk about the sacrum, we also have to talk about this posterior lower aspect. If, if I, perform a, 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 an effective hinge, then I'm gonna see the eccentric orientation of this, this posterior lower glute max, which is gonna allow this, this full nutation to occur. So it's not just the sacrum. Again, we gotta, we gotta talk about, about the coccyx here. Um, so I do have, I have more of a compressive strategy at the base of the sacrum, and I do have expansion posterior lower. So I think you're absolutely right in, in regards to, to what we're gonna see in the hinge. Because again, we're gonna see the same thing here. I'm gonna be biased towards compression in dorsal rostral. I'm gonna see more, more expansion in the posterior lower. If I go to my narrow archetype, then we're gonna see, we're gonna reverse gear. So let me bring this back in. <clears throat> so now I'm gonna be biased towards AP expansion here, a little bit more compression here, which is what we're gonna see in the pelvis from a squatting perspective. So we're gonna be biased more towards counter-nutation here. So this is my inhalation bias to the base of sacrum going back. The relative position of the, of the lower aspect of the sacrum and, and the coccyx is going to be uh, more compressed, much like the, the thorax is. So again, this is, this is my design for a squatter. Now, let's go to your example with the heels elevated goblet squat and how we're gonna get the, the relative expansions that we wanna see on this posterior aspect of the, of the rib cage and of the, of the pelvis. So if we use a heels elevated goblet squat, what we're gonna to try to do is we're gonna to try to bias this early propulsive strategy, which is gonna be an inhalation bias. So what we're actually trying to drive here is this, this dorsal rostral expansion and the counter-nutation at the base of the sacrum. But as I move through the excursion of the squat, what I'm actually trying to do is I'm trying to restore the normal mechanics of, of the thorax and the pelvis. And so while I'm starting with this dorsal rostral expansion, counter-nutation bias, as I move through the excursion of the squat, what I wanna see is I start with my counter-nutation. As I move through this middle range, 
of hip flexion, I want to see the, the IR of the, of the ilium and I want to see the nutation of the sacrum, which again is that posterior lower expansion. And then as I go below my sticking point, plus or minus 30 degrees, then I want to see this, this re-expansion into the inhalation counter-nutation. So we are getting dorsal rostral expansion. We are getting the posterior lower expansion under normal circumstances because that's what we're, we're trying to achieve is this normal movement uh, of the of the relative expansions in the the posterior ribcage and in the posterior pelvis. So um, the only thing that I would say is that when you start to add load, so when we start superimpose load, you're going to see an increase in concentric orientations. You're going to see increasing compressive strategies, um, just because of of the the need to to create this incompressible. Um, axial skeleton that I can they can superimpose load onto and so now all bets are off as far as the strategy is concerned and you'll see all sorts of compensatory strategies that may influence your outcome so please keep that in mind what I'm talking about um, prior to discussing load is the fact that what we want to see from a normal mechanical standpoint so Mihail I hope that helps you understand this to a small degree if you have any other questions please let me know at askbillharmon at gmail.com and I will see you guys on the coffee and coaches conference call tomorrow morning good morning happy Thursday I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Welcome to the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Um, everybody's going to present with a little bit different representation of, of, of how they take information in, how they process it, and then how it's, how it's demonstrated through our behaviors, right? And so um, some people don't have the same tools, right? I mean, you look at, I, like, all you got to do, if you look at everybody's picture on the screen, do you have the gallery view up? Yeah. If you, everybody's picture on the screen, okay. So here's what I want you to do. Grace, I want you to look at everybody's picture for a second, and I want you to tell me who the strongest person on this call is, like physically strong. It's like they pick the most weight off the ground. No idea. Take a look. Well, maybe Lucas. Okay, why? Why? Uh... Is it because of his, his dashing hairstyle? Yeah, exactly. Profile, neck width. Okay, so you see the neck and you immediately go, wow, that neck goes on a really big, strong guy, right? Okay. So literally, just by looking at someone, you made a judgment call, right? And you're probably right, right? Because again, the, the, the muscle mass kind of goes, goes with the territory. But again, you just have to respect the fact that everybody's going to be a little bit different. And so they're going to process information a little bit differently, a little bit more slowly. Um, in many cases, so if I have somebody that has what I perceive to be um, sort of one end of the, of the movement spectrum capabilities, then I do everything slower. I might need to create a vocabulary for them because if they don't, if they don't spend much time being aware of movement and I need to teach them how to do that, then that's where you, we get this difference between sort of like this internal external cueing kind of a thing, right? Because the, the internal cues are designed to provide a sensation that most people may not be able to acquire themselves. Um, why do you do manual therapy? Well, you do manual therapy to give them a sensation that they cannot acquire themselves. 
right? So, so again, we have lots of tools. So we have physical contact, we have, we have verbal cues, we have movement-based activities, we have awareness drills and, and things like that that we would use. And we use them all for everyone to varying degrees. Some people just need a much stronger influence in one of those than the other. Where you take a high-level athlete and you just and it literally you just say, go over and do that. And they immediately know what to do. Like they just intuitively know what to do because their movement intelligence is so high. And then you take the guy that's been, you know, sitting behind a, a, a desk as an accountant for 25 years that can multiply three, four digit numbers in his head in 10 seconds. And, and we don't appreciate that, but we give him, we knock him for not being a great mover, right? Because that's what we do. And, and we have to approach that just a little bit differently. We have to respect what people are bringing to the table, so to speak, right? And, and again, it's just, sometimes I gotta go slow. Sometimes I can go fast. Sometimes I gotta develop the movement in, uh, 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 vocabulary so, so we can communicate because they don't know what we're talking about, right? And then, when, then don't ever, and we all do this, but don't ever, don't ever belittle someone even internally like when you're when you're when you're you're giving your your best cues and everything you think you 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 just knocked it out of the park and they just go what because they just don't have that understanding right so we just got to find a way to do that and and that is one of the the levels of complexity of working with with complex humans right that we just have to figure out the, those ways to do that right so so again you just slow down and you just find a way and um, one of the conversations that I have during, during the subjective is I always try to find out what people's background was when they were younger. So I say, what sports did you play in school? What was your favorite game? Or like, you know, all that kind of stuff, because that gives me an idea of a frame of reference. So if I get a guy that comes in and he goes, oh, I've done jujitsu for, for uh, um, 25 years, right? And, and so now I have, I have a frame of reference. So, so now when I'm teaching him a hip shift or something like that, or I'm, I'm trying to get him to feel something on his back, I go, I go now, it's like, because when you lay him on their side, it feels like a hip escape in jujitsu to them. And so I say, now do your, do your, your right hip escape. And, and they go, oh, so that's what, okay, now they know what it feels like. So you have to create a frame of reference. So again, you try to find that if you can. And then there's cases where everything just, you know, um, is like the uphill battle where, oh yeah, I've never played a sport in my life. I've never really moved. Um, you know, I was a sickly kid. I had a lot of allergies, you know, that kind of, you know, you're going to have these scenarios that come up. You just, and again, I, I hate to default to this, but you just sort of find your way, right? But, but always respect what they're bringing to the table because they do have some, you know, probably specialized intelligence in, in some way, shape, or form. We just have to kind of figure out how, how we make that connection. So, okay, so let's just talk about analogous structures for a second, right? Okay. So, so when you look, when, when you're looking at, at, at situations where um, you're, you're looking for the analogous structure, you have to look at it from an embryological standpoint. So things that are derived from the same place, okay? That's, that's one possibility. Um, the, the physical structures are the same, right? The movement behaviors are the same, okay? 
And so, so when we look at when we look at these things, that's how you identify analogous because they don't, uh, I, they don't all look the same. Yeah. And so that's what you're looking for, right? So, so the point of confusion when 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 I say that there's five muscles in the glute max, I'm I'm I, I don't care what you call it. I'm just looking at it behaviorally, and it's like where else where it does so many things, right? They right. just said they just looked at it from a distance 2300 years ago and and the Greek guy looks at the other Greek guy and he goes what do you want to call that he goes I don't know it's a big one let's call it maximus they go awesome right what right. what they weren't doing they weren't looking at it from from a behavioral standpoint if they would have done that they would have said oh this part does this this part does this this part does this and this part does that they would if they would have done that we would we would have a totally different frame of reference for that musculature and it would have a totally different name actually it, it wouldn't have a name there would be five different names you got another question that's kind of not pertaining to that well i mean it is your show let's go right 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 you think uh, like a clash in method acting would serve most uh trainers and uh physical therapists and coaches well you 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 just warmed my heart so here you go you ready let me hear it the summer before physical therapy school i took an acting class oh because i am i am horrible i was horrible in in interpersonal situations gotcha. and, and so so that that i basically you know um threw myself to the lions and and you have to do like improv and you have to do i i had to I've actually been paid three times to be an actor. Um, but no, um, it's not a bad idea just because of that, right? To, so um, just the discomfort of, of, of trying to interact with somebody, right? Um, and it, I, don't, I don't believe in lying to people and I don't think that you should fake anything. It's just a matter of getting comfortable with the discomfort, okay? Um, have, you ever, have you done anything like that before? Um, I just have a really close friend that's like, uh, that's been in acting school and I guess through him, you know, sort of thing. Like any discussion we ever have always gets brought to acting from his perspective. So like, I'll tell him something about coaching and how like I did this and then he'll be like, dude, that was just like acting and like, he would lateralize it to his world. Right. And right. We've, been, we've been buddies. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but it, it, again, it, it, and then you don't have to take an acting class per se, but, but it does help to, to gain that, that level of interaction. So you think about like an internship is a lot like that, right? So right. It, all you got to do is, is have an intern around for like three or four months, and then you see the evolution of, of their, their behavior where the personality is totally hidden. They're very, very quiet, unless they've had coaching experience in the past or they have this gigantic personality that, that walks in the door, you're gonna see this, this evolution where they're slowly sort of, as they say, come out of their shell. Good morning, happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, it's been a great week. Today's Friday, we're gonna wrap up the week with a really good Q&A from Philip, Philip with an F. Philip says, hope you're doing well. I was wondering if excessive, whatever that means, 
neck training can lead to difficulties in nose breathing. I've found that to be the case with myself. I took up wrestling again a couple months ago and we started doing weighted neck flexions and extensions. Keep up the Q&A, please. It is gold. Well, thank you, Philip, for that. Um, I think there might be some stuff here that we can unpack for you that, that may be useful. Um, so let's dig into this and, and see what, what comes up. Um, a couple of things, under any circumstance when we're talking about increasing force production, no matter what we're doing from a, from a strength training standpoint, we're gonna be using an exhalation strategy. So that's how we produce high force. And so under those circumstances, we're going to trap air, we're gonna squeeze it, and we're gonna use some form of compressive strategy. And so neck training is, is no different. Couple things that we need to understand about about the, the the pressure management in the neck is that the the influence of the pressures from the thorax influence the the pressures that are going to be in the in the upper airway. So the upper airway is going to change shape just like the the thorax does, and so breathing rates and 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 flow mechanics are going to be be influences here um, because of that of that shape change. And so just by changing your breathing rate. The, the volume of air that, that you're, you're bringing in through your nose can alter the, the flow mechanics. So we have laminar flow, which is, which is sort of like this smooth type of flow where, where it's easily flowing through the airway. And then we have turbulent flow, which can actually increase the sensation of nasal resistance. And so the, the way that I would compare this, if you just took a nice quiet breath in that you couldn't hear, and then compared that to an aggressive sniff, as if you were trying to smell something. So the reason that that the, the turbulence increases when you sniff is because we, we want to actually smell. We want to actually um, try to uh, uh, get a sense of what the odor is and the turbulent flow actually allows us to, to um, maintain the, the air in the, in the airway where we do sense, sense the smell. Um, but, you know, when you think about aggressive activities like wrestling or, or, or weight training, um, we're probably using turbulent flow mechanics quite a bit. And so maybe you're a little bit more sensitive um, in, in that regard. And so you get that, that sense of, of nasal resistance. When you take your neck through flexion and extension, there's also a shape change that takes place in the pharynx. And so that's the airway behind the nasal passage, behind the oral passage and, and, and down into the throat. And so there's, there's sort of a sweet spot where that, that airway is, is open the most. And so if I go into an, an extreme end range extension, I will end up compressing the airway as I bring my head through. And while I'm still extended, then the airway is going to stay open. And then as I go into the extreme flexion, I'm actually going to compress the airway. So again, it depends on your neck position um, that you're using as well. There's also a cranial shape change that we might need to consider here. Um, again, strong exhalation strategies, um, strong compressive strategies will actually alter the, the cranial shape into an exhalation position, which can reduce the anterior posterior diameter of the cranium. And so maybe that narrows your nasopharynx and increases this turbulent airflow uh, like we were talking about before. Um, when we talk about, about the throat position, we talk a lot about the, the hyoid and the intensive uh, because it's a great way to identify um, what, what strategy people are, are using in the neck. And so when we have an elevated hyoid position, the suprahyoid muscles are concentrically oriented. And what this does is it pulls the mandible back, which brings the tongue along with it. And so then we, we actually compress that, that oropharyngeal space 
And again, this creates resistance to, to, to airflow. And so we always have these, these consequences that are associated with, with position. And some of them are actually results of training. So if you're doing a lot of, of, of neck training, you're using a lot of compressive strategy, you're, you're increasing um, most likely a lot of concentric orientation above the hyoid. You're gonna elevate that hyoid, hyoid and then you're gonna create a, an airway that, that compresses from this nice round airway to a nice flat AP airway which is great for, for resistance and stability, but probably not so great for, for uh, breathing mechanics. A couple things that I would say that you probably want to monitor um, to make sure that you're not losing this adaptability in your airway shape and, and mobility is end range shoulder flexion. So end range shoulder flexion is associated with the ability of the lower cervical spine to, to turn. So if you lose end range shoulder flexion, you're going to lose some of that adaptability in, in the lower cervical spine. So that would be something that you want to monitor as far as an activity that you might want to use to sort of offset some of the secondary consequences of, of the of the neck straight um, neck strengthening is what I call just lazy rotations. If you lay on your side with your head supported on a pillow and you're just turning your head from side to side with normal quiet nasal breathing, just learning how to turn your head with the lowest energy possible. You can actually reduce some of this concentric orientation and that might help you restore some element of, of, of airway adaptability. Um, worst case scenarios, you may have like a, an oropharyngeal coordination problem that might be resolved with some myofunctional therapy um, solutions. And some of those activities are, are very useful as far as tongue positioning uh, may be concerned. Again, another worst case scenario, maybe you have a, a palate shape problem that does not allow you to position your tongue appropriately. So that, that's something that might be, be um, looked at by your dentist to determine whether that's um, causal in, in any effect. And then also go see your ENT to make sure that you have um, all structural issues taken care of. So Philip, I hope that gives you a couple of things to think about and, and a little bit of understanding about what might be going on. If it doesn't, then please ask me another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a great weekend. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. I'll see you guys next week.